Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In the very first verse of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew raises a question that looms over the entire story. Whose son is Jesus and what kind of Messiah will he be? How does Jesus relate to David? Why the mention of Abraham? Will the reign of Jesus prove to be different than the reign of David? How does the genealogy of Jesus differ from other genealogies in the Old Testament? Richard and I begin our discussion of the Gospel of Matthew with a review of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 220 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Father. We're going to do the Gospel of Matthew as we promised, and we're going to keep today's episode relatively short and just focus on verse 1 and maybe the background in the Old Testament that will help illuminate what's going on in verse 1. You have some critical characters already mentioned in the outset of the story. You have, obviously, Jesus, who is the main character in the Gospel of Matthew, or so we presume. You have David, who was the shepherd, become king in the Old Testament. And that story unpacks, in some ways, a very difficult and tension-filled context for the beginning of Matthew. And finally, you have the mention of Abraham, and the point about sonship, both with respect to David and with respect to Abraham. When we're reading the Bible as literature, on the one hand, you and I read different texts, and it's always important to see how those texts inform this. Of course, we can't talk about the son of David if we're not going to look earlier on at the texts about David or about Abraham or anything like that. At the same time, we always have to be cautious that we don't make a verse say something it's not saying, that we're bringing in texts that are relevant that allow us to understand a text correctly. I just want the listener to beware that this is something that we're always trying to be cautious about, trying to read the text as the text, but it's forcing us to look at other texts in order to understand it. There are two directions in which one should read the Bible. The first direction is from beginning to end, from start forward to the finish, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Father Paul talks a lot about syntax in grammar and extends the logic of syntax to the storyline of the Bible. The order of books even has a functional value that imposes a context that controls how we read and understand. At the same time, because the Bible in the school in which we work, Richard, is understood to be a canonical whole that was handed down, not something that was pieced together 
in fragments the way sometimes Western scholarship deals with the Bible, like a disassembled carburetor. That's the metaphor that Professor Nikolai Roddy uses in his critique of Western scholarship. They know how to take the Bible apart, but they don't know how or don't want to put it back together again because when it's actually put together and running as an engine, suddenly you have to deal with what the engine does. And in the case of the Bible and scholarship, that means that the scholar can't stand above the text. He has to put himself under the authority of the text. And that's obviously difficult because the Bible is, in many ways, a very painful teaching to accept. So what you're talking about, Richard, is the importance of reading in that correct order. At the same time, we might be talking about an Old Testament text and then referring to a New Testament text. When we do that, as we did frequently with Jonah, we're not saying that you should read the Old Testament text through the lens of the New Testament that's incorrect. Because although the Bible is a systematic whole, the Old Testament was written and presented as a complete canon first, and then the second canon was added to the first canon later with the rise of the Roman Empire in late antiquity. So when we talk about the New Testament, when we look ahead to these later stories, what we're saying is that there's a connection because the ones who wrote the New Testament text in question were reading the Old Testament text that we're explaining now on the podcast. And the verse that we're going to discuss today is the first verse of the New Testament. So we think about it as the first verse of Matthew. It's the first verse of the New Testament, meaning we've had all this work in the Old Testament come to an end, and then this is the beginning of the next section. And so what is this verse doing with all the material that came before it? That's what we're going to try to unpack a little bit today. And should we read ahead in Matthew, which we will likely do often over the next few months as we work through this text, it's because part of the assumption of the hearing of Scripture in a community, remember, Scripture was meant to be read aloud. It was meant to be heard. And it was meant to be heard over and over again. So part of the assumption is that you're not hearing Matthew for the first time. Some of you may be hearing Matthew for the first time. We're going to play to both audiences. We're going to be faithful to the chronology of the text. But at the same time, Richard and I have stood in church for thousands of hours over the years hearing these texts read to us. And so therefore, we're going to hear terminology and we're going to say, hey, I heard that in chapter 10. Not to mention, it's going to be pretty hard not to think about Mark when we're talking about Matthew because we've spent so much time on Mark, even though technically Mark comes after Matthew. That's okay as long as in the mind of our listeners, you understand that the order of texts is of the utmost importance. When you understand that, when you hear something in the current text that calls to mind something that you would hear later in Mark because you're familiar with both, this is valid. But then when you think about those connections, you still have to keep the chronology in mind. If you are disciplined in this regard, you'll realize that we're not making a Greek salad of things. We are simply trying to show you how the Bible works once you're familiar with it as an addressee. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
So there are some important terms right off the bat in verse 1. We have obviously the word viblos. So you could say book, you could say scroll, you could say record. I think the choice of record by the New American Standard Bible is interesting because at the end of the day, and this is so essential for understanding the way Scripture imposes control on the addressee, the Bible is not an idea. The gospel is not a concept or message the way that Christians talk about it today. It is, in fact, something that was recorded once and for all. As a text with words, like you said, it's not a concept or an idea that happened to be expressed. It is the words of the text in this particular order, like we place the emphasis on the syntax. The words have to come in a particular order. It has to be expressed in a particular way. It's not an abstract idea. It's very concrete. You can see, Richard, in our own historical context with the devolution of our culture, that it's linked very much to the obfuscation of the precision of language. Everyone questions what everything means, and nothing has meaning anymore because everything means whatever people want it to mean based on how they feel or what they've experienced or what their identity is or what they're lobbying Congress for. But in fact, words have a meaning, and we don't mean an ontological meaning. We're not arguing that a word is some essential platonic thing that carries a meaning. We're saying that a word is defined by the way it's used. The way it's used in a culture, that's why language evolves and changes and meaning changes because words are used differently. But no matter how much we try to argue that words don't have a value, any scientist of language, and Richard is a published linguist, any scientist of language like you, if you want to explain what a word means, you look at how it's used, you document it, and you have a meaning. Now, spoken language evolves, but written language is codified. As Matthew says here in verse 1, it's a book, a scroll, a record. And so therefore, the precision is, if you will, even more precise because it's a fixed point in time. It was captured. So if you want to understand what the word biblos means, not in general, but in Matthew, you have to understand the significance of the word book or scroll or the importance of recording a text within the biblical narrative. The genealogy of Jesus is the second piece of the verse. Now here, I think it's important to consider the background of Genesis. We did a podcast recently with Father Paul on Genesis 1 through 11, and he spent a lot of time talking about the word genesios and how often it's mistranslated. Genesios corresponds to the word toledot in Hebrew. Right, which means generations. It has to do with being begotten and that sort of thing. Now, in Genesis, the problem with the different genealogies that are presented is that they always represent the building of a human dynasty. And in his commentary on Genesis, Father Paul shows how it's linked to structures and edifices and, in short, the ego of the progenitor. So already, if we're in Matthew and we're talking about a genealogy and we're talking about Jesus, the Messiah, and David, the king, already someone familiar with Genesis is at a minimum, Richard, going to be asking, 
is this going to be like the genealogies of Genesis that set up human dynasties, or is something else going on here? Right, and it feels like a new Genesis. That's the interesting thing, is like we have this first verse of the New Testament, and already we're feeling echoes from the first verse of the Old Testament. So the author of Matthew is drawing these parallels, and that's what's fascinating when you see this as the New Testament. It's set up as not a new Old Testament because it can't function without the echoes that it has from the Old Testament. It's a text in its own right, but it can't exist without what comes before. And when I say exist, it can't have the meaning without the syntax of the Old Testament coming before it. So now you have, of course, Jesus again mentioned as the Messiah, the son of David. Here we have again, another tension that's being set up. Because someone familiar with the Old Testament should already understand that David is a problematic figure. David is only an heroic figure when you read the Old Testament through the lens of fundamentalism, where you embrace the human dynasty and you embrace Zion and you conflate Zion and Jerusalem as a worldly thing, which is very typical because when you're lazy when you hear scripture and you don't pay attention to nuance, you're left with Zionism. You're left with this idea that this whole teaching is about a piece of real estate in Palestine, and that's not the case at all. So with respect to David, it's the same mistake. There is an eschatological David who's hinted at in the wisdom literature, but then there's David, the one who disappointed God by forsaking his responsibility as a shepherd in order to seek the throne of a king. I mean, we have David in two kind of personas over the course of the narratives. We have the young shepherd David without a sword who is victorious by the hand of God. And we have the abusive adulterer David living in a palace with an army who is acting in spite of God. And so David is always this ambiguous character. And when he comes up as this eschatological character, there's always this kind of tension. Which kind of David do we want? Because we've got both. We know that David the shepherd is the one that everyone can get behind. But so much of the story is about him acting incorrectly and beginning the end of the United Kingdom, which finally ends after Solomon because of his abusiveness, once he gains power and a sword. So which eschatological David are we going to have? We really hope we have the first one, but as we see in every country on earth, you always end up with the second one. Now, I want you to think back to the time we read ahead to Mark, <laughs> talking about Barabbas and the tension that was set up, that will be set up later in the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament over people's expectations, what they wanted from the Messiah, what they wanted from the Roman authorities. What they wanted was David the king. The sword David. The sword David. So that tension that we find later in Mark is already established in verse 1 of Matthew. That's how we read forwards and backwards in Scripture. But again, without Mark, someone familiar with the Old Testament would already know that this is an interesting question. What kind of Messiah is Jesus going to be? And Matthew's implication is that he's going to be the Messiah 
who fulfills the promise to Abraham that Abraham's seed, that his household would fill the earth and that he would have children as numberless as the stars of the heavens. Now remember, though, that this promise, is it really about the progeny of Abraham? Is this a genealogy that's really about the dynasty of David? Which seed is it that produces Jesus? That's another question that's raised here already in verse 1. Abraham had many children, and those children had many children. We always think Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We forget about Isaac's brothers. We forget about Jacob's brothers. You know, it's as if Judah is the only one left, even though he had 11 brothers, or 12 brothers. This is where we narrow down too quickly. To be a child of Abraham means that you're in his tent that Abraham brought you in. It could be genetic childhood, which actually doesn't really get discussed in the Bible, because it's a matter of being part of the household. This is how the Bible talks about Abraham. When Abraham circumcised his children, they were the children of his slaves too. Everyone who lived in his tent. The point is, do you live in the household of the one who had faith in the Lord? Because that's who Abraham is. This shows the contrast between David. If you're a child of David, there's two ways to go on this. There's the child of Abraham route or the not child of Abraham route. But the child of Abraham does not depend on genetics. Because if it did depend on genetics, then we're only getting a small portion of the story here. It's narrower in this genealogy, but it's broader in the rest of the story than what we think. What you're saying is exemplified in the story of Jacob and Esau. Because we assume as Western addressees of the text, who've become indoctrinated in, to make a long story short, an imposed interpretation that flew out of Christian nationalism. We assume that Jacob is the good guy. That's our shallow, pseudo-fundamentalist reading of the text, our lazy reading of the text. But who says that Esau was the bad guy? All throughout Scripture, God appoints people not because they're good, but because he decides to. You saw when we read Jonah, looking back to Jonah, you saw that Jonah rejected the word. He was disobedient. He was self-righteous and willfully violent towards the needy neighbor. Yet God chose him to go, not because he was holy, but because God chose him in order to illustrate how grace works. Lest the one who is sent to teach imagine he's above the one whom he was called to serve as a teacher and so on and so forth. Lest the people who receive the Torah first imagine that to be chosen to receive it first means that you're greater than those who come later. This is the issue Paul deals with throughout his letters as a Pharisee. So one mustn't make assumptions about who is good or who is bad because Esau was not neglected by the Lord and was not excluded from his care in Genesis. Not only the book of Matthew, but the whole New Testament begins by raising these questions. What does it mean to be a son of Abraham? What does it mean to be a son of David? And this is what's going to unfold as we read the New Testament. I wrote about this in my book, Richard, about how as a child, I heard this genealogy for the first time. I mean, really heard it when I was 11 or 12 years old as an altar boy carrying a candle for the reading of the gospel. I don't remember the sermon. I do remember how the adults 
in the community would often lament, why do we have to hear this really boring reading with a bunch of names that nobody cares about leading up to one of the most exciting holidays of the year? Why can't we read about the birth of Jesus the Sunday before Nativity? And I, you know, heard those critiques and put them on the shelf in the back of my mind to be dismissed later in life and listened to the story. And things struck me about the genealogy, even as a preteen, simply by hearing the text. I was ignorant of the languages. I was ignorant of the historical context. I had some sense of the historical context because my father, may he rest in peace, was a very traditional Coptic Egyptian and was very careful about customs and propriety and honor and decency and was a very kind and fatherly and at the same time authoritarian parent. And just that aspect of his behavior, which is taken from the cultural milieu of the Bible, shed light for me on the meaning of this presumably very boring genealogy. So we'll talk more about that as we progress, but I really want to stress to everyone that people usually treat this as the boring historical record of Matthew, but without the genealogy in the beginning of Matthew, the rest of the story will not unfold correctly for you. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.